Today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farrakh. My problem is, is that I get it backwards. Instead of worrying about nothing by praying about everything and thanking God for anything, I worry about everything. I don't thank God for anything. And no wonder I don't have that peace that surpasses human understanding. And by the way, that's the key. How do you worry about nothing? You worry about nothing by praying about everything. And by the way, while you're praying about everything, thank God for anything. And you'll worry as a result about nothing if you do that. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of 2 Corinthians. Worry can be consuming. There are so many unknowns in this life, and we often like to try to control them by worrying. Pastor J.D. encourages us to pray about everything and give thanks for anything. In doing this, we will worry less and experience greater peace in our lives. When worry creeps in, take time to talk to God. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now, here's Pastor J.D. with his continuing study, Obstacles to Godliness. I sometimes think that the sins of the Spirit are more deadly than the sins of the flesh, the filthiness of the Spirit. You know, we are here today and outwardly in our bodies, we're clean, we showered, Most of you did, I hope, anyway. <laughs> and outwardly, we, we look clean. And you can tell when you look at somebody outwardly, but what you can't tell is what's on the inside. Man looks at the outward appearance. And by the way, you all look marvelous. I just wanted to let you know that. But see, God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He sees right to the heart. What does he see when he sees my heart? Does he see my heart full of pride, spiritual pride? Does he see my heart being impure? How about this? How about the motives of my heart? Are the motives of my heart pure or are they impure? Do I have impure motives? in my heart. Well, this brings us to the second obstacle to godliness, and it's that of our unwillingness to be honest and open. In verse 2, Paul tells them to make room in their hearts as he had with them. He had really poured out his heart to them. He was very open and candid with them, had a great love for them, but they were not reciprocating it. And I think it's interesting what he says. He says that they've wronged no one, corrupted no one, nor exploited no one. Now, why would Paul say that? Because this is exactly what he was being accused of. In verse 3, he says that he doesn't want to condemn them. Rather, it's because they have such a place in his heart that He would, in fact, live and die with them. And I believe that about the Apostle Paul. And remember now, Paul knew them very well. 
personally there in Corinth, spent a year and a half with them. I believe that he led many of them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He had a lot invested in them. He had a love for them. He cared deeply about them. And it was not being reciprocated by them. In verse 4, he says that while he has spoken bluntly with them, that's kind of an understatement, (laughs) very blunt, very firm, in love, as we talked about last week, because he loved them so much, he spoke the truth in love to them so much. But because he spoke bluntly with them, he takes great pride in them and is encouraged by them. And he says this in spite of the difficulty and the many trials that he had encountered. What Paul is saying here is that instead of the Corinthians being open and honest with him, they were unfairly critical of him. And this is sad. And I got to believe that this really hurt the heart of the Apostle Paul. They had believed the false accusations about Paul, and apparently there were many. And if this weren't bad enough, they themselves had even been falsely accusing Paul as well. And to me, this is why he tells them that he has been honest and open with them such that he's never defrauded or wronged anyone. Reminds me of something that Oswald Chambers said in My Utmost with His Highest. Basically, this is the gist of it. As Christians, it's not, have I been wronged? It's, have I wronged? It's not, have I been defrauded? The question should be, have I defrauded? And I think of what Jesus said about removing first the beam in your own eye so that you can see that speck in your brother or sister's eye more clearly. And what's really interesting in the original language is that it would indicate that that speck that is in your brother or sister's eye actually came from the log that's in yours. You know that, that <laughs> think about that. That's pretty convicting. You know that saying, uh, takes one to know one? Okay, let me see if I can, uh, just by way of an illustration, uh, share with you how, how that and what that looks like, okay? Let's say that I say of you or to you, you're full of pride. The question needs to be asked, how do you know? How do you know what pride looks like? I'll tell you how you know what pride looks like. You know what pride looks like in my life, this speck of pride in my life, because you possess a beam of pride in your life. And that's how you know. That's how you know. And isn't it true (laughs) that our sin always looks so much worse on somebody else than it does ourselves? And is it also not true that we always tend to shed ourselves in a more favorable light? I I find myself, even now, all these years I've been walking with the Lord when I'm in the Proverbs, which I love the Proverbs so much, and you get to those contrasting Proverbs, you know, the ones that say, the wicked do this, but the righteous do this. And as I'm reading it, I'm going, yeah, those wicked people. And because I'm the righteous, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're the wicked. 
You're the wicked. (laughs) You do that. No, I don't. Yes, you do. That's for you. That is you. You are the one. I think of the prophet Nathan to David after one year of covering his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murder, the sin of murder of Uriah the Hittite, her husband. And the prophet Nathan says to David, Thou art the man. And to David's credit, he repented. And it was a godly sorrow that led to a genuine repentance. Now, this ends well, by the way, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, because Paul is going to praise them for their repentance concerning a matter that he had written to them, very difficult issue that he had written to them in his first epistle. One of the things that I'm learning in my own walk with the Lord, particularly in the ministry, is that false accusations can destroy a brother and sister in Christ. I think of it's, I want to say it's Proverbs 7, might be 6, where it lists the, this is probably why I get it confused, the seventh thing, the six things that God hates, the seventh being an abomination. And what's really interesting is the seventh, which is an abomination, is the sowing of discord amongst the brethren. God not only hates that, it's an abomination. Now why? Why does God hate that so much? Because of the damage it does to his people and the damage it does to his church. False accusations not only destroy Christians, but they can also destroy churches. And when they do, the devil couldn't be happier. Why? Because the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And here's the thing. Oftentimes, the devil uses Christians to do his accusatory bidding. What do you mean? I thought a Christian could not be demon-possessed. They cannot. If I'm born again of the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit indwells me, I cannot be possessed by a demonic spirit. However, I can be oppressed by a demonic spirit and I can also be a part of what Satan is doing, even as a born-again Christian. I can actually do Satan's bidding. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in his second epistle to Timothy, chapter 2. I'll read verses 24 through 26. He says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, By the way, that also carries with it the idea, as it does in Titus, being teachable, which is what we're going to talk about next. The the qualifications for an elder is not just able to teach, but being teachable, teachable. And that's what the original language indicates. So able to teach or be teachable, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may, listen, come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Did you catch that? 
know what that means? That means that Satan can snare us as Christians and take us captive as Christians to do his will, to do his will. That is terrifying to me. That is horrifying to me. And you know what's really scary to me is that those who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will don't realize it. Don't realize it. And when you, as Paul says, gently, patiently, in humility, try to correct them, sometimes it just makes it infinitely worse. And I would suggest this is why God hates it. It is so destructive. It is so destructive. Well, the last obstacle to godliness, godliness that we'll look at today is our unwillingness to be teachable. This is huge. In verse 5, Paul says, when they came to Macedonia, they had no rest, in that they were harassed with conflicts on the outside and fears within. By the way, that is great, greatly encouraging to me to know that the Apostle Paul <laughs> had fears. The Apostle Paul feared. To me, I don't think God faults a man for being fearful. It's not having fear. It's when fear has you. That's when I think that, and, and I'll add worry in that same category. You know, we're, we're all prone to fret and worry and fear, and we will have fears from within, but don't let that fear have you. Let that fear be the catalyst for you to cry out unto the Lord, knowing that he will hearken unto the voice of your cry. Some of us are just wired that way. That's, that's kind of our, our default. We're worriers by nature, some more than others. We worry about everything. I think of Philippians 4, 6 through 8, where Paul says, worry about nothing, pray about everything, thank God for anything. And this is a paraphrase, basically. And the peace of God, which surpasses human understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. And my problem is, is that I get it backwards. Instead of worrying about nothing by praying about everything and thanking God for anything, I worry about everything. I don't thank God for anything. And no wonder I don't have that peace that surpasses human understanding. And by the way, that's the key. How do you worry about nothing? You worry about nothing by praying about everything. And by the way, while you're praying about everything, thank God for anything. And you'll worry as a result, about nothing if you do that. And that's where the peace that surpasses human understanding comes in. Well, in verse 6, after saying this about conflicts on the outside and fears within, he goes on to say my favorite two words in the Bible, but God. I love those two words. In fact, I may in my office... Uh, upstairs, get those two words and have it framed and stick it right on my wall because that changes everything. 
That changes everything. Yes, there's pressures. We have trials, fiery trials in our Christian life, but God. <laughs> we have marriage problems, financial problems, all kinds of problems, but God. But God will have the final word in my life. And this is why Paul says, but God, in spite of that, God comforts the downcast, which is exactly what he did by sending Titus. And in verse 7 he says, it wasn't only the comfort from Titus, it was their comfort to Titus, who it appears had told Paul of the Corinthians' deep sorrow for him and their ardent concern for him, which is why he expresses so much joy. He says that his joy was greater than ever. Why? Because the Corinthians were teachable and received his rebuke. And again, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, had repented. There was a, a godly sorrow. Uh, we'll maybe talk about this more next week, but there are two kinds of sorrow, right, in the Bible. There's the sorrow of being caught, and then there's the godly sorrow that leads to genuine change or repentance. Here's the illustration. I like to use traffic and, 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 and driving and exceeding the speed limit. And this is from my friend, I just, I want you to know I have not had a speeding ticket in like over 30 years. I am an upstanding citizen of the community and I abide by the laws of the land. How am I doing? Doing okay here? Good. All right. I got the thumbs up. And, uh, <laughs> and that doesn't mean that I don't exceed the speed limit. It just means that I didn't get caught. Come on. Don't look at me all spiritual. You're, you're just the same way, right? It's not that you don't exceed the speed limit and break the law. It's just that you didn't get caught. Now let's just say that Art pulls you over. I mean, how intimidating is that? I mean, you know, just come up to you, you know, that deep voice. Let me see your driver's license or registration. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, sure you are. The question isn't, are you sorry? The question is, why? Are you sorry that you got caught? I think you are, as evidenced by the radar detector that you had. No, you don't have a radar detector. <laughs> You're sorry that you got caught. You're sorry that you got pulled over. How do you know? Because if you were genuinely, truly, sincerely sorry, you would change how you drive. That's what the godly sorrow, I guess we don't have to talk about it next week, I just did, just, <laughs> just now. But that's the godly sorrow that leads to true repentance. And this is exactly what the Corinthians had done. And the reason that there was a genuine repentance that came from a godly sorrow on their part is because of this one word, teachable. They were teachable. They received it. As hard as it was, even as painful as it was. And what is our tendency when we're on the receiving end of a rebuke? It's to get defensive, isn't it? Me! What about you? That's what we do in marriage, right? In marital conflict. Oh, I know. You guys have great marriages. You don't. I'm the pastor. I should have a perfect marriage, right? 
My wife and I have been married for 28 years this year, and I'll tell you, and good thing she's not in this service because I can't tell you, but <laughs> I will just say that in the early part of our marriage for those, those first few years, I was such a jerk. I was so full of spiritual pride. I could do no wrong. Everything was her fault. Woman. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> so I, don't look at me like that because I, some of you, <laughs> And guys, don't elbow your wives, and wives don't elbow your husbands either. But I was such a jerk. For that, I, I was not teachable. And when a, a brother who I knew loved me enough to say something and speak into my life, to point out something, and I, I didn't receive it. And doing so was to my own peril. And it created a tremendous hindrance in my Christian life. Being unteachable is one of the greatest hindrances to godly living. And I'll flip it around to the other side and say that being teachable is one of the greatest joys of godly living. So much so that Paul would say, you know, in spite of all of the difficulties, the trials, the conflict, everything, my joy is far exceeding it because you repented, because you were teachable. I'll close with a quote from G. Campbell Morgan. I think it sums it up perfectly. He says, no circumstances of personal affliction can dim the gladness of seeing souls grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus. I think about this amazing church that is my privilege to pastor, and there is nothing greater and grander to me that brings me more joy than to see the work that God is doing in your lives as you grow in grace. As I watch you from the sidelines and I see the hand of God in your lives, I see the blessing of God on your life. You know what? It makes it worth it. To see you sit here in this church and to see you, because I'm usually in the back, that's the remedial row, is in the back. And I'm watching you just worship the Lord. And I cannot even begin to tell you how it makes everything that we went through during this building project worth it. It makes it so worth it to see how blessed you are. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul was saying here. Thanks for listening today to In Spirit and Truth. We hope Pastor J.D. Farag's message from the book of 2 Corinthians has blessed you and that you continue to seek God's hand in your life. If you'd like to hear more messages from Pastor J.D., simply visit our website at inspiritandtruthradio.com and click on Listen at the top of the page. You'll also find a link to subscribe to our podcast or you can download messages to share with your family and friends. Did you know you can also take In Spirit and Truth with you wherever you go? It's true. Using your Apple or Android smartphone, download our mobile app and have biblically sound messages available right at your fingertips. Links to the app are right on our website, inspiritandtruthradio.com. 
We'd also like to encourage you to find and join a local church community if you haven't already. Having a group of believers to support you and learn from God with you is a great encouragement. You too will have the chance to bless others with your own unique gifts and talents. If you're in the Kaneohe area, we would joyfully welcome you into our fellowship here at Calvary Chapel Kaneohe. Our weekly services focus on studying God's Word and worshiping our Creator. Service times and directions can be found by going to InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com and clicking on Calvary Chapel Kaneohe at the bottom of the page. That's all we have for you today here on In Spirit and Truth. Be sure to join us again as Pastor J.D. digs deeper into the book of 2 Corinthians. With your will, holy 